Okay, if you uh, were here last week, we stepped into the book of Lamentations. It's not a, a book that I don't think many Christians are familiar with. If you weren't here last week, um, what we did is we looked actually at the book itself and we saw that this is one of the most intense expressions of pain in the Bible. Does anybody remember what, what it's lamenting? The fall of, uh, of Jerusalem, of, of Zion, and all the unspeakable things that were done to her. And uh, I, I, I call Jerusalem a her because in the book she's called what? Does anybody remember? Daughter Zion. Depicted as what? A widow. Or if you look closely, worse than that, a rape victim. And then throughout the book of Lamentations, you see that there's this interplay between the narrator and daughter Zion... And especially through the voice of daughter Zion, we hear this lament. It's, it, it's raw, it's gut-wrenching, it's honest, it's biblical. We also saw that uh, the book is, is a powerful work of art. And I've seen it this week even in people who are suffering. When people suffer well, it's, there's something beautiful about that. We saw that uh, each chapter has 22 verse, verses, or chapter 3 has 66 verses, divisible by 22. The 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And it goes verse 1a, verse uh, 2b, and, and so forth. And, and these acrostics teach us that there is an A to Z in our pain and suffering. Suffering is not the whole thing, but there's a beginning to it and there's an end to it. And then this all is moving towards chapter 5, where no longer is it the narrator speaking, her daughter Zion in her anguish crying out, but it's the whole community in one voice expressing their pain to God. And then right in the heart of this book, in chapter 3, we're introduced to this new voice. The voice of a man, but not just any man. It's the voice of, of a gibber. A Gibber is a strong man, a mighty man, a champion, a Messiah. But when you read chapter 3, the surprise is that rather than fixing the suffering, this Gibber suffers with him. Because that's what Messiah is. That's what the strong man is. He's God with us. And what we know today is that through Messiah Christ, we have a God who suffers with us, who weeps with us, who laments with us. And Christ came to suffer, not so that we wouldn't suffer, but that we could understand all our suffering in light of his suffering. And what did his suffering achieve? Redemption, resurrection, And that's the hope of our suffering. It's achieving the same thing. So this summer we've been looking at a lot of chapters like this. We've been in the book of Job. We've been in Lamentations. We've been looking at how the the Bible validates pain and suffering and validates our expression of that through through lament and, and doing that even as a community. 
This week, what I want to do is look at how the book of Lamentations fits into the whole of Scripture. Now, I already mentioned the historical background of Lamentations is what? It's the destruction of Jerusalem. And who destroys Jerusalem? Babylon. And see, now I feel like we're back into a series that we did several years ago at this church... Uh, where we saw the Bible as a tale of two cities, because you can read the Bible that way. Um, You can see that the Bible is a tale of of these two cities, the city of man and the city of God, of Babel or Babylon and Jerusalem. Because you find these two cities at the beginning of the Bible, they're in the middle of the Bible, and these two cities are also at the end of the Bible. The Bible can be seen as a tale of these two cities. That Babel... Babylon, same word in Hebrew, is introduced to us in Genesis 11. If you remember the story of the great tower that's built, and when you read that story, you see that Babel is the city of man, which is characterized by pride and selfishness. It's where people do life independent of God. It's a place where you make a name for yourself, where you prove yourself, where you grab power, where you climb the ladder, where you make it to the top. It's the place where it's all about you, where you create yourself, you define yourself, you promote yourself. It's your job to save yourself. That's why Babel or Babylon is a place of exhaustion and burnout. It's a place without peace and shalom. It's a place of oppression where the weak get trampled. In the end, it's chaos. In fact, that's what Babel means in Hebrew. It means confusion. It means chaos. Also at the beginning of the Bible, we're we're introduced not just to the city of of man, but we're introduced to the city of God, to Jerusalem, to daughter Zion. And we're first introduced to the city when Abraham is returning home after rescuing Lot, and he approaches this great city as this great victor who's just conquered four kings, and he comes with all his spoils of war as maybe the greatest man on the face of the earth. But out comes this man with a strange name named who? Melchizedek. What does Abraham do? He bows. He worships. Because one before him is even greater still than Abraham. And of course, Melchizedek and means, uh, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Hebrews tells us that this is Messiah Christ. Of course Abraham's going to bow. Jesus calls later this city, Jerusalem, the, the city of a great king. And Jerusalem itself means place of shalom, place of peace, because Jerusalem is the city of God. It's where God establishes his reign and his rule over all the earth. And his whole redemptive plan is is wrapped up in this place. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, a foundation stone. And so you see these two cities, Jerusalem and Babel. They are historic places because the Bible is a historic book. But they're also 
spiritual realities that go beyond a specific place. Biblically, Babel or Babylon and Jerusalem represent the city of man and the city of God, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven, chaos and shalom. And as someone likes to sign their emails when they write to me with the word war, (laughs) that's what this is throughout the biblical story. I want us to think about lamentations in light of these two cities because look at verse 1 of Lamentations chapter 1. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. In fact, literally it reads, alas, alas, woe, agony, the city. Alas, the city once so full of people, how like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She was queen among the provinces. She has now become a slave. And listen, this is, this is more than just the devastation of, of, of any city. This is daughter Zion. This is the place where God has made his home. This is the place from which God is reigning and ruling and unleashing his reign and rule into all the earth. And it's destroyed. And who destroys it? Who lays it to waste? Who destroys God's house? Babel. Babylon. How can this happen? I mean, at face value, it'd be very easy to conclude that chaos is triumphing over shalom, that darkness is winning. Just like we can conclude the same things today, even the news of just this past week in places like Iraq, which is actually the historic place of Babylon and all that's going on from that place to God's people from the appearance of it it looks like chaos is winning it feels like darkness is triumphing over the kingdom of God and this isn't just in the Middle East but this is all over the world and maybe some of you need to look no further than your own life today This feels like chaos is is winning. And what I've noticed amongst so many Christians today is that so many of us are losing perspective. Because we don't have a biblical perspective and there's all this doom and this gloom and this complaining and this moaning. I was thinking this week about the story of Joseph in the Bible. Where, where the brothers go to Egypt to get some food, and they come back to their father Jacob with some grain, but minus their brother Simeon. And, and their father Jacob, when he sees this, says, okay, now Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, everything is against me. That's how it appears. 
But see, what Jacob doesn't know is that God at that moment is moving heaven and earth for Jacob. That God is orchestrating everything for Jacob and his family. Because behind the scenes, God is spinning all Jacob's suffering into gold. All the evil that's working against him, God is actually orchestrating it for great good. Because God has plan. He does. And you guys, the same thing is happening in Lamentations, because at face value, it looks like everything is against them. Everything that defined them as God's people, it's taken from them, God's special dwelling. They're taken from God's special land. They're left to live as exiles in a foreign place. But then I read one of my favorite texts in all of scripture, Jeremiah 29. I mean, it's one of those texts where God just turns the, the, the tables even on this reality. And you read Jeremiah 29, and God comes, he writes a letter to, to God's people while they're exiles. And he says, yeah, I know, you guys are exiles right now. In fact, you're right in the heart of the underbelly of evil. You're in Babel itself. But then he says, I want you to know something. I carried you to this place. In other words, this was all part of my sovereign plan. I carried you as a father carries his son. I have a plan for you here. And, and, and then he spells out his, his plan for, for the people. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to settle in Babylon. I want you to move all the way into it. I want you to do life there. Just like we heard this morning from Donnie. And then Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 7, he says, and this is also what I want, what I want you to do. I want you to pray for, for the peace, for the shalom of Babylon. Babylon? I mean, I hope you all know this morning that in, in, in the Psalms it says that we are to pray for the, the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem. But here God says, I want you to pray for the shalom of Babylon. In fact, it's a doubling of the word shalom. It's shalom, shalom, which means not just shalom, but it means perfect shalom. Why? I'll tell you why. I want this to burn in our hearts. God loves the people of Babylon. He loves them. And we live in Babylon. Our world today is Babylon. And if we're going to just sit around and complain about it, then we're failing to be God's people. Our job is to enter the chaos, to live in the chaos, and to pray into the chaos for the shalom of God. Thank you, Donnie, for showing us our marching orders. And then you all know the verse that we all run to because we skip all the other stuff in Jeremiah 29. Right? I mean, we see this on graduation things and letters. Who knows it? For I... I'll let you find it. Go find it. Jeremiah 29. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you'll call on me. You'll come and you'll pray to me. And I will listen to you, says the Lord. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. God, right now, whether it looks like it or not, is orchestrating all of heaven and all of earth to fulfill his gospel plan. And you and I get to be a part of it. And don't you for a second think Babel is winning. God has won. He will win. And right now, he wins. He wins. He is in control. He is sovereign, and he has a plan. Now, do you know how this tale of two cities gets played out in our Bibles? That's just not wishful thinking that I just said. Let's go to the end of our Bibles. Revelation, let's start with 18. If Lamentations is the lament over Jerusalem, I love the subject heading of Revelation 18 in my Bible, at least. This is lament over Babylon. In fact, look at verse 7 of, of chapter 18. It says, Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself in her heart. Listen, this is what Babel says. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. I'm a queen. It's right out of Lamentations. And here we have at the end of our Bibles, uh, Babel. Speaking the language of, of, of lamentations. But here Babylon the proud is saying, I'm not going to lament. Are you kidding me? I'm a queen. If you don't know anything about Revelation, Revelation is actually a book written to Christians, to seven actual churches who are enduring severe persecution from the hand of Rome whether it be in the form of discrimination in the marketplace or having property confiscated or being sent to the arena to entertain the Roman mob by either being offered to animals or hung up on crosses. And so Babylon, to the original hearers, is Rome. But not limited to just that one city, but all the cities that propagate this world system. And what they're experiencing and what they're seeing is that Babel is triumphing. It's winning. And even in this book, Revelation, Revelation two times calls her Babylon the Great. And then in chapter 18, uh, refers to Babylon as that great city. And the reason Revelation calls her Babylon the Great or that great city is because of what makes Babylon great to the world. And if you read chapter 18, you essentially see it's three things. It's money, it's sex, and it's power. 
This is Babylon. This is the city of man. It's this power-driven, pleasure-seeking city of man. Come on, we know this city. We know this world system where money, sex, and power are king. Where these things define people and places. I mean, this is the city that people seek. This is the city that makes people, quote-unquote, great. And I can't go any further right now without asking my heart some honest questions and also asking you some honest questions. Where's your heart right now with the things of Babylon? How consumed today are you with money? What about sex? Are you stewarding this area of your life for the glory of God? What about power? Do you have this need to be in control? Do you have this need to be noticed? Do you have this need for leverage? Babylon's a proud city. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. I am a queen. And yet, the final alas, alas, lament is Babylon. Look at verse 10 of chapter 18. Alas, alas, O great city Babylon, city of power, in a single hour your doom has come. Verse 17, alas, alas, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In a single hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Verse 19, alas, alas, O great city, here all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth, but in a single hour, she has been brought to ruin. Babylon will fall. And to the extent that our hearts and lives are hitched to Babylon, we will fall too. Now what about the city of God? Let's just move over a couple chapters to chapter 21. (laughs) This text just makes me giddy. This this is our hope. And what I've realized is that so few Christians today really can explain or articulate or even close their eyes and and see what their hope is going to look like. But we have it all just painted so clearly for us here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. 
has passed away. Anyone who's grieving today or experiencing loss, I mean, your heart just when you read this has to just be like, yes, 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 I can't wait. I mean, the earth, the earth in which we live, it's going to be a, a, a made new earth. It's going to be redeemed, uh, tikkun olam. God's going to repair and fix the whole thing. And, and the picture here, too, is this new Jerusalem coming down. I want us to see that in verse 2. Because we're not going up in the end. It's coming down. And where is it coming from? Heaven. In other words, the final end to which we all look forward to is not us escaping this world for heaven, but heaven is going to come to this world, to a world made new, and it's going to come to us in the form of a city. New Jerusalem. And if you want to know what this city is going to be like, I think you first need to just think about Genesis 1 and 2. It's Eden, because look at chapter 22. In fact, my subject heading is Eden Restored. Then the angel showed me the river and the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and and the Lamb down the middle of the great street and the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing the twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There you have it. The same thing in the Garden of Eden, the river flowing out, the, the, the tree of life. Because when God first made the world, he also created this beautiful garden. And the garden was God's special place. It's the place where God dwelled and where God made his, his living room and where he dwelled with his people. But now, instead of a garden, God builds a city. You better be excited about being an urbanite because we're all going to be urbanites. Now, there's no way I can in in any way even begin to describe the awesome reality of this city. But the text, I think, gives us four things. So I want to put these things before us as as clearly as I can. The, The first description of this city is in 21 verse 1. Where it says, no longer will there be any sea. I don't know what some of you are thinking. You're like, what? I love lakes. We're not going to be able to fish, water sports, anything like that. What do you think? You got to be careful. But I don't think that's what it means because of what sea means metaphorically in the Bible. Metaphorically in the Bible, the sea is home to what? Chaos. No more chaos. (laughs) Sounds good. Who lives in the sea, according to the biblical picture? The dragon, the serpent, his minions. No more. In fact, when Jesus is walking on the sea and Jesus is calming the sea, this is more than just another one of his magic tricks. This is Jesus showing his rightful place in the universe that all things are under him, including the chaos. And by the power of his voice, 
be still. He can calm it. And so the absence of the sea means that all these evil forces that work against shalom and wreak havoc on, 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 on God's creation are no longer going to exist. And I'm telling you, you guys... I don't think we can even begin to imagine what this is going to be like because right now I don't think we even know the extent to which chaos, even this very moment in this very place, is working against God's shalom in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, our marriages, our homes. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy. No more see. Go to chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. <laughs> What's the curse? Probably the best way for me to explain this is what full-blown cancer can do to a person's body is what the curse has done to the entirety of God's creation. I mean, it it entered creation when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And at that moment, the, the, the perfect harmony that existed between Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve and creation and the animals and the whole create, created order, the harmony that existed between Adam and Eve and themselves and the harmony that especially that exists between Adam and Eve and God is just gone. In fact, all God could say at that moment was, 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 Ica, alas, how could this happen? All Adam and Eve could do is hide from God because their innocence was gone. In fact, in my opinion, it's at that moment that the entire creation aged, that every last inch of God's good creation is infected with this deadly cancer, which results in chaos, decay, and death. The Bible says right now that the whole creation is groaning. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, says, we too groan. Again, I think it's so difficult to imagine a life without the curse because it's all that we have known. David in Psalm 51 says that we've been born in sin. That we're, we, we know that we're all aging. We can feel it in our bodies. We can feel this decay. We can feel this death. We're infected with it. But I think a, a world set free of the curse is best expressed in verse 4 of chapter 21. God's dwelling place will be with men and skip down to verse 6. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. No curse means no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain and suffering, no more death. That God says something that's that's stunning. He is going to personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. The psalm says that he collects our tears in a jar. 
because he cares about our tears because he cares about us. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan like me, um, yeah, I know you can laugh. Um, in, in the last book, Sam Ganji, um, he, he wakes up after something horrific has happened, thinking that everything is, is just lost. It's all gone, but only as he wakes up to discover that his friends are around him, one of which is Gandalf. And he just looks at Gandalf and he cries out, Gandalf! He goes, I thought you were dead. He says, but then I thought I was dead. And then he asks a question that our heart just wants to know. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Can you imagine if that would happen? Everything that is sad, that sad in our world, sad, things that have caused you to be sad. Imagine if it could all become untrue. I think Ephesians 1 verse 10 answers Sam's question with yes. Because everything is going to be summed up in Christ, says Ephesians 1 verse 10. Our entire life is going to be summed up in Christ. Meaning that our stories are going to be retold in light of him. And they're going to be retold in such a way that every loss, every tragedy will not only make sense in light of Christ, but it will somehow, it will look glorious. Can you even dare to imagine that? third reality of the city. Look at 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will, he'll dwell with them. He will live with them. In other words, God's going to be downtown right on Main Street. If you don't know this about God, this is a, has always been God's heart. Because in Eden it says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Throughout the biblical story, we see a God who pitches his tent, who, who, who tabernacles with his people. We see a God who, who builds a house, who makes his home right in the neighborhood. We see a God who, who, who lives in his people through his spirit. Because this is who our God is. He longs to be among us. He longs for his space and our space to be one. In fact, I think you could say that that's the whole story of the Bible. But if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you're going to find out that there's not going to be a temple. And you can read in Revelations 21, I think it's in verse 15 or 16, that dimensions of the city are going to be 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. In other words, it's going to be a perfect cube. Why a perfect cube? Well, because in God's tabernacle and his temple, the holy of holies were perfect cubes. And this is the Bible's way of saying that there's not going to be a need for a temple. There's going to be no need for a holy of holies because the whole city's going to be a temple, a holy of holies, fulfilling Isaiah and Habakkuk's prophecy that the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. 
We long for this. But I think the most spectacular feature of this city, in fact, everything I've, I have mentioned up until now, I think, is, is, is second or third by a long shot compared to this. And it's the verse where it says, and we will see his face. Do you long to see the face of God? Do you remember Moses? I mean, we just studied Moses. Moses, after having all, all God's law, God's name, God's ways revealed to him, he, he saw the the glory of God, but yet he still said, God, I want to see your face. Show me your face. And God says, Moses, you can't see my face. To see my face will kill you. Moses longs to see his face. We long to to see his face because we've been made to know that face. And we long to see his face even more than we long to see the face of a loved one who is no longer with us. We're going to see him face to face. And you know what this moment's going to be like for God? In, in Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, we, the new Jerusalem, are going to be prepared as a bride. I mean, just think about that in light of Lamentations. Uh, daughter Zion, who in Lamentations is described as a widow and an agony and a rape victim, defiled, unclean, is now this bride who's beautifully dressed, unblemished, without stain, and stunningly beautiful to her husband. And who's her husband? Look at verse 9 of chapter 21. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It shone with all its glory, the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So stunning is she. She shines with the brilliance of the glory of God. You guys know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. One of my favorite things is, is, is doing a wedding when I get to stand next to the groom. Because while everybody is looking at the bride, I'm not looking at the bride. I, I'm taking in the groom. Because I'm wondering if this guy's even going to be able to stand when he sees his wife and how beautiful she is. And there she comes to him. There are literally towns, times when I'm standing next to him where I hear sounds, groans, gasps. And I just smile. Because I think that's how our husband is going to look at us. We come down the aisle. And he's just going to be ravished with us. And I know what you're saying. Like, how could he be ravished with us? I mean, look at us. I mean, we're just this motley crew of people. And, and, and the Bible answers it. It's because of the one who prepares us. He makes us beautiful. In fact, every time Jesus is referred in, in Revelation 21 um, and 22, what does he refer to? The lamb. Why not Christ the king? 
Why not the Lord? Why lamb? Because lamb reminds us as to why we're beautiful. We've been washed. We've been prepared. We're without stain, blemish, or defect. We are going to be perfect to him in every way. And what does this all mean for us? The Bible tells us that right now, this world is not our home. We are exiles, and we're living in Babylon. Jesus said, you're you're more than just existing in Babylon, but we are to be a city set on a hill. Our mission right now is to be this city, daughter Zion, New Jerusalem, to the world. Which means we are to be God's face. We are to be God's abiding presence. And our mission is to wipe away tears. I hope you know this. Our world is broken. It's hurting. So many people are mourning and crying. There are so many tears today. And it's the city of God on earth. God wants to partner with us. He wants us to be his face, his presence. He wants us to wipe away tears. Are you even close enough to broken, hurting people so that you can see the tears of our world? Do broken, hurting people come running to you and they're hurt because they know you to be a place or a person who's going to lament and mourn and weep and wipe away tears? See, Paul says, I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. As Christians, we have such an awesome, amazing hope. And don't you see, with this as our hope, that we can face anything. We have such a great capacity to suffer and to enter suffering and to suffer with those who suffer and to lament and to lament with those who lament. So I'm going to end with this question. What city do you belong to today? What city are you seeking? What city defines you? What city has your heart? Jesus said, seek first my righteousness and my kingdom. Seek it with everything you have. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Hope and a future. But he says, I'm asking you to seek me. Seek me. Seek my city. Be my city. With all your heart. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would convict us of ways in which our heart is entangled too much in Babylon. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would set us free from Babylon and loving Babylon. But God, that your, your Spirit would set on fire a desire for us to seek first your kingdom 
and to be a people who pray for the shalom of the people in Babylon. And then we give our hearts to this, our lives to it. Things that are going to actually count in eternity for the glory of Jesus Christ.